the title of this Dharma talk is Reconnecting to the Commons. The talk is meant to complement and resonate with yesterday's talk, which was about reconnecting to our own mind. About recovering the wholeness of our inner mind. So, today's talk is about how to reconnect to our collective mind, how to recover the wholeness of this mind that we share in, and how to do away with the partitions separating me and you from each other and from the totality of things. It's an ambitious goal, true, of course. But then, you know, spiritual teachings, religions have constantly been exploring that possibility. Some with the language of God, others with other languages. But just like yesterday, before talking about how to regain, how to recover our connection, in this case today with the whole, with the commons, we need to examine the extent of our alienation. That's the first part of the talk. Not long ago, I ran into a reference to a, an episode of Star Trek. Uh, it's an old episode, and, and I'm not a Trekkie. I'm not, uh, I haven't been watching them. But this intrigued me, so I, I ordered the DVD, and uh, it was powerful. The idea, that is, the idea. It's, for me, a metaphor for this alienation I'm talking about. The episode is called The Cloud Minders. It's about a planet, like all Star Trek things have different planets somehow. There's a planet called Ardana, whose inhabitants are called troglites, very close to troglodytes, of course, naturally. And the troglites have nothing to say about the running of the planet Ardana. Nothing to say. Because the planet is run from a cloud up there called Stratus. There's an elite living in this cloud and they run everything in the planet, and of course they benefit from all the minerals that get extracted <coughs> from the planet. But they haven't got a clue of what happens in the planet. They never visit it. Not at all. They just 
do what they, what seems to work to keep the troglites doing what they want them to do, period. And of course, all that matters for the inhabitants of Stratus is the profits that they can make. Does it sound familiar? <laughs> <laughs> uh, of course, we're not being run by a physical cloud above us, but it's very much as it were. Our Stratus equivalent are the military headquarters of Pentagon, are the corporate, corporate boardrooms, and yes, the corridors of political power as well. Totally disconnected. I, I love props, so with the kind help of Raquel, we managed to create some form of a cloud. <laughs> he is Stratus. That's a little drawing, not maybe the all scene, but uh, anyway. If you can turn it around. Well, whatever, you know. It's a symbolic cloud. <laughs> Let's look at a little bit of this part of Stratus. Take the military, for instance. Of course, in the midst of brutality of war, Enemy, any enemy, anybody labeled as enemy is, can be exterminated. It's inhuman. It's, it's not, it doesn't, this person doesn't live in the same, same planet as us, as we live in the cloud, the Pentagon. And today, with a war now being fought in the civilian sphere, because that's where the war is being fought today, it's not a military war, uh, anybody can be labeled as a terrorist. Anybody. Anybody here. For, for whatever reason, because the name is similar, perhaps. And, and then whole populations as being viewed through the devices of a drone. And they become figures in a video game, ready to be exterminated. And we condone that. Seems to be okay. Why? Because, well, the... the Military headquarters are there, but we are a little bit there too. We, there's some, many of us, I mean, even 
decent newspapers uh, accomplices of that. And, and, and then tail economy, which should be run for the benefit of all involved. That's in general the theory at least. But in reality, it's just fixed so that it benefits the few who run it. A catastrophic oil spill? Sorry, that's collateral damage. Uh, we need it, this sort of thing, with the risk of oil spills, to fuel our economy. Fuel our economy. An economy in free fall? Sorry, the too big to fail bankers say, sitting in the boardrooms up there. But we are only responsible for boosting the value of our stock. Anything else? Collateral damage. The disconnect is complete and is enthroned by the laws of the land. Namely, that the corporations are only responsible to the stockholders. I can't resist this. Things that come my way. This is a cartoon, actually from the New York Times. I'll, I'll read. This is Peter Pan-like character who says, I'm taking you to a magical never-never land that is unaffected by events in the real world. And the kid being dragged along says, ah, we are going to Wall Street. <laughs> so, we know it, but we keep doing it. And, and for those of us that still would wish to believe that we live in a democracy, and therefore still can change the rules. We are in a democracy in theory, but not really in practice. In practice, first, we're embedded in a massive tangle of misinformation. And without access to truth, how can we have a democracy? How can you know who to vote for? Remember this guy called George Orwell? He wrote a book, 1948. In 1948, no, no, right. In, 19, in 1948, 60 years ago, he wrote a book called 1984. 
You know, I was predicting what would happen at that time. Well, he's so much out of date, of course. This is 2010. Big Brother is around, of course, but Big Brother has been privatized. It's incredible, you know. I mean, not only are the armies largely privatized, and people fighting in Iraq and supporting the army in Iraq and now in Afghanistan. Then there's a Supreme Court decision granting First Amendment rights to corporations. You know, well, you could say, well, let them have First Amendment rights if we have First Amendment rights. But compare the money that they have to back up those First Amendment rights and the money that we have. And then, I don't know whether you've noticed, but there's a scary series of articles that came out very recently in, in the Washington Post, a very establishment newspaper. Even they are shocked, because apparently the collection of intelligence has also been largely privatized. Had never been announced, but the Washington Post has just uh, a week ago, or two, started a series of articles and covering that and then showing alarm. So, here's Big Brother. Now, I have to make a f footnote here. I'm not saying all this to demonize the corporations, and certainly not to demonize the individuals involved in corporation. This is a system that's shaping our world. We are part of that system. And corporations emerge out of the circumstances of the system that we have put together. I mean, we contribute to put together each one of us. So the circumstances depend on us to varying degrees. In fact, I'm sure that given the opportunity, each one of us, and I volunteer as the first one to do it, are liable to fabricate our own stratus cloud. To go up there, you know, to, to a place that's never affected by events in the real world, and take up residence there. I mean, yesterday's talk was about that, how easily we yield to the fantasies of the eye, of the ego, and, and live here. As a funny illustration of that, uh, funny 
alarming too. I've, I've run recently into references to um, an internet uh, game called Second Life. I'm, I'm a bit allergic to internet games, so I, I haven't been able to, been willing to go into it. I just took a peek to it. But it's extraordinary. I mean, first, of course, you go there, you register yourself as a resident. You become a resident. Residents there are called avatars. You can change your sex, your, your shape, your looks, your behavior, your profession. Nothing is forbidden from prostitution to drug taking, whatever. I mean, that's not the main issue. Okay. Main issue is that you created life for yourself, an invented life. And everybody, and start socializing with other avatars who have also invented their life. It becomes madness, you know, to my mind. It has also a strange aspect that you can buy real estate there with a special currency of a second life. You can buy clothes, designer clothes, very expensive designer clothes. But where do you get the money? You have to buy it with ordinary dollars, you know. <laughs> so there's a, a huge investment there. Too. So just to point out how susceptible some of us are to become a tourist up there. I mean, the sort of first stages in that are Disney World and Disneyland, places that we go visit. They're physical, but they're fake. We go, and then we come back out again. And that's it. But second life, we continue to live in, you know, if, if we take it seriously. So, so, something needs to change. I guess that's the point. Alienation needs to come to an end. As long as we individually and collectively continue to live isolated from reality in a world of fiction, in a stratus-like cloud. You're stuck there. And the world is never going to function widely. Wisely, sorry. And so, how can we guide ourselves and the world properly? How can we come down from the clouds of fiction? 
how do we come down from stratus and put an end to our collective alienation? Well, first, obvious things. Think. If we do come down from this world of alienation the re to the, into the real world, we have to be ready to open up to things as they are. Grief, pain, and all the difficulties included. Can we find the courage to do that? I know of people who do find the courage. I know of people who are ready to go to places like Haiti to help. People, we had one medical doctor in our group who then moved away. She was part of, what is it, Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Border. And she went to Eritrea, etc., to to work for essentially nothing. I mean, just survival pay. So it's possible to find that courage. And I'm not saying we need to do anything extreme, but what we need to do is simply to be ready to be face to face with pain and grief and, and difficulties. Just as we need to do that personally, we need to, need to do that collectively. Personally, only when we allow ourselves to feel the pain can we connect to the fullness of ourselves and likewise collectively. But collectively, the situation is more complicated because to access our collective wisdom, we need to do that simultaneously at the same time. Because if each one of us realizes, yeah, we need to do that, but at different times, there's no moment of collective awareness. And so, one way that this is likely to occur is when some event can trigger it in all of us. If some event, possibly or most likely a painful event, as it, I discussed yesterday from the individual cases, if something can bring us all down from the clouds of our collective fantasy and make us confront our pains. If something can trigger it. Like, for instance, whoops. Oh. Wow, okay. Thank you.
blasted. I had um, a needle to puncture this. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, here it is. Here it is. Here it is. So I wanted to surprise you, shock you <laughs> with that. <laughs> Balloon. Sorry, Raquel. <laughs> Powerful. <laughs> Stratus is gone. <laughs> but of course, the sound was painful, a little bit. And the reality can be much more painful. And the reality, this needle, uh, disasters that happen. Disasters like earthquakes, ecological or economical catastrophes, even wars, extensive wars. Not these control wars that we're having in somebody else's land, but a war that actually comes home to whoever is doing it. Now, I'm not in any way, in any way, in any way suggesting that we should intens intentionally start to produce disasters. That's not what I'm talking about. Because if we were to do that, the outcome would be inevitably tainted by such manipulative intentions. You know, there's a, a woman writer called Naomi Klein who has written a book called Disaster Capitalism. It's a, quite an intelligent book. I, I haven't read it, but I read the articles that summarize it. Um, it's called The Shock Doctrine, The Rise of Disaster Capitalism. And as she described, and it sounds true, the prevailing economic system is constantly seeking opportunities to take advantage of disasters and even trigger disasters, if possible, like wars, of course, to, to expand its agenda of colonization and uh, gentrification in the local scale. But then there are disasters that happen. Disasters, yesterday I was talking about the individual disasters that pain us and help us learn. And now I'm talking about collective disasters. And those social disasters, ecological disasters, can act as triggers to awaken our collective wisdom in one fell soup. You know, there's a woman called Rebecca Solnit. She's also written a book about disasters. But I like Naomi's book. She's 
look at the other side of the coin in disasters. The title of the book is very revealing. Is a paradise built in hell. And subtitle, The Extraordinary Communities That Arise in Disaster. And so she chronicles all kinds of disasters, particularly earthquakes, the uh, financial crisis like the one in Argentina, um, wars, etc. And offers very touching examples of how these disasters created opportunities for the bliss of congeniality, of solidarity to emerge. In fact, quite often this bliss can only break through after the structures, the old structures, have been cracked open. After the stratus fantasy has been brought down. It's also true, and Rebecca Solnit acknowledges this very well, that the waves of solidarity, this culture of solidarity that emerged, has been every time short-lived. Soon to be replaced by the re-emergence of the status quo. But in an increasingly globalized world, disasters are going to become increasingly globalized and irreversible. Like the breakdown of a economic order, of a world economic order, or, or global warming. Very difficult to hide ourselves from those anywhere in the world. Just for a little while, yes, but not for long. We may soon have to decide between making the planet definitely uninhabitable or reinstalling the flow of solidarity among all of us and even among all sentient beings. After all, the planet is not the property of human beings. I believe that we are getting ready for the latter. I believe that the very disasters that we are, have faced, and particularly the ones that we will be facing, are both a danger and an opportunity. Danger, obviously. An opportunity to discover our own capacity for solidarity and love. This belief may sound optimistic, 
mean, because I'm willing to look at the dark side, what I'm saying may sound optimistic, because, well, this is possible, regardless of the stories that Rebecca Solnit tells us, uh, which are true, but if this is positive, positive in a lasting way, it had to be because we can trust the basic goodness of our individual and collective selves. Can we do that? Can we do that? On the one hand, we have been indoctrinated by a culture of, our culture, of reckless economic competition to believe that our basic nature is just to seek personal advantage no matter what. You're all familiar with that, I'm sure. On the other hand, spiritual teachers' teachings tell us of our deep yearning for giving and receiving, for love. And that includes all religions that are worth considering religion. is <laughs> not a privilege of the Buddha's tradition. But, nevertheless, going to the Buddhist tradition, the Buddha compares our basic nature with the gold that is contained in the midst of many impurities, whose golden properties cannot manifest until the gold is purified, made malleable, <coughs> made luminous. And he says, meditation practice is precisely the practice of doing that, of purifying our inner gold. So, which teachings are we going to trust? Are we going to trust the teachings in our culture that tell us it's all, you know, who who gets it first, or what the Buddha teaches. I propose that rather than picking an authority to follow, not even picking the Buddha, and certainly not picking me as authority, that instead we look inside and discover what feels like our, like our authentic nature. This is the kind of exploration that we can do in the context of the practice, where, where we develop a direct line to our authenticity, gradually perhaps, but we can 
feel ourselves directly, not through thoughts, not through ideas, not through philosophy or polemics, but directly. That, that becomes possible when we lift the layers of conditioning that we have accumulated. Practice is one of cleaning our, our minds, shedding all this conditioning, and seeing what emerges. For me, what has emerged over and over again through the practice is a sense of love and solidarity, a sense of tenderness for all my fellow beings, a sense of not being cut off from the world around me, but of being part of a flow of life. Of course, this feeling needs to be supported by the world around me as well in order to expand and spread. Is it likely that the world around me will support this and around each one of you <coughs> will support this opening up to tenderness? I believe it is. I believe the examples are in Rebecca Solnit's book, the book entitled A Paradise Built in Hell. I, they feel authentic to me. And also my experience tells me that love and solidarity are contagious. If I'm right, then through our collective tenderness, another world becomes possible. Let's sit for a few minutes in silence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.